This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bent. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select mostly at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 35th episode of the Quarterman Podcast, I'm looking at a book selected by Shag. The Irredeemable Shag. But first, let me tell you about some of my recent efforts at cheap comic book acquisition. I spent a month this summer with my dad, helping him recover from knee replacement surgery. While I was down there in North Carolina, I was playing a game on my iTouch that pulls in nearby real-life locations from Foursquare, I guess. And Carolina Comics was there, and it was supposed to be something like just a mile away from his house. I did a little research and found it, and visited the shop one day. It's a nice new store, just a couple years old, clean, well-lit, decent selection, and cheap bins, and a different type of selection from my local quarter bin selections, which usually are 90s books that were just massively overprinted. But this store had older books, books that were cheap, not because there are hundreds of thousands of copies floating around, but because they were in pretty bad condition. Reading copies, if you will, not collecting copies, which is perfect for me. And there was some great stuff in there. I nabbed Warlord number 12, the oldest issue of that title that I've been reacquiring over the last few years. Also, I went into that store with seven holes in my ROM Space Knight collection and nabbed five of those books. And I grabbed a few mid-70s Bronze Age books for Emily to uncover, as well as the single oldest book now in the quarter bin database from 1973. An awesome trip to a new store. See you next summer, Carolina Comics. When I got back to Ohio, my local store still had a day or two left on its 25-cent sale week, but I was too exhausted from the trip back and a little bit sick for a few days, so I didn't make it. But Emily and a couple of her buddies went, and they got a few things. But they ought to have one more sale week before the end of the year, and I hope to be able to hit it then. Now, I have mentioned half-price books before, and one of the locations, about 25 minutes from me, has a handful of 25-cent short boxes, in addition to their dollar comics. I was there just a couple months ago, but I was back in that part of town recently with some time on my hands, so I thought I'd give it a shot. I wasn't expecting much new inventory there, but I would guess half the books there were new, and I found another dozen good issues there, mostly from the 90s again. They have more obscure books there than the store that does the the regular quarterbin sales every three months, so continuity comics and Pacific and Epic, those sorts of things. So I was thinking... It had been a really good summer for the Quarter Bin database. And then one fateful day in late August, podcast superstar, the irredeemable Shag, Facebooked me and a few other members of the Fire and Water podcast listenership that he was coming to Columbus, Ohio for work and if we could do a meetup. So myself, my daughter and podcast partner Emily, Aaron Bias, and little Russell Burbage all met with Shag for discount comics and then good Midwestern barbecue. We met at the half-price books that I mentioned previously, and we all dug through the cheap stacks for a while. 
to celebrate Shag and Rob Kelly's recently 100th episode of the Fire and Water podcast, I gave Shag a frankly over-the-top gift of 100 actual legal tender American cents for quarters. And let's be honest, all of his podcast and social media efforts over these many years, to me, that's definitely worth 100 pennies. Now, in addition to those four quarters, I also gave Shag another bright, shiny quarter and the awesome responsibility of selecting the book for this episode of the podcast. He considered joke selections, ones he knew I'd hate, or just plain goofy comics, but he gave in to his better nature and selected a book that he himself liked by a writer he respects, by a publisher whom I've said I want to read more of, a book that he thought I would like and that he thought you would like to hear me talk about. And that book is Firearm Number 1, a book in the Ultraverse line from Malibu Comics, cover dated September 1993. Firearm Number 1 had a cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired this comic at a well above average 87% discount. The cover by Howard Chaikin looks like a cover by Howard Chaikin. Tough dude with a scowl is firing a big old gun. Oh, a firearm. Literal. Gotcha. The story, American Pastimes Part 1, was written by James Robinson, with art by Cully Hamner and John Lowe. For context, this is about a year before the debut of Robinson's critically acclaimed work, his take on Starman. The issue itself starts with a conversation inside the office of a bail bondsman named Ernie Shadrock. The owner and his office manager are arguing over how long they should stay open. It's past 11 p.m., waiting for Alex Swan to arrive with a bail jumper named O'Malley. Then we turn the page and two things happen. One, we switch for the rest of the issue to first-person narration from the perspective of Alex Swan. And two... Swan and O'Malley smash through the glass storefront of Shadrach's bail bonds office. I tell you, it's times like this I could do with a spot of tea. A short exchanging of consequences ensues, or continues might be more correct, and O'Malley is taken out with a water cooler. Swan demands more money because Shadrach told him that O'Malley just had limited ultra powers, not the full extent of those powers. Limited? Limited? Firing death rays out of his bleeding fingers is limited? Yeah, I was worried you wouldn't take the case otherwise, Ernie admits. Shadrach argues and calls him Firearm, a name we learn Swan hates. Swan goes home, gets himself cleaned up, and does in fact fix himself some tea. In England, I worked for a government bureau, the Lodge, covert dirty trick squad, and wild times they were. And while he cleans his weapons, we learn the origin of his nickname. The Lodge gave me the firearm codename because of my experience with my little friend here. If Shadrach had told me the truth about O'Malley's powers, I would have had it with me. You may have seen it in action, maybe. But be patient. You will. He heads into his nondescript office in Pasadena, California, and checks his messages. He has an offer for hockey tickets, and the art book he ordered from Roman's bookstore is in. And there's a lead on another case. In case we didn't know already, he is a P.I. who specializes in ultra-related work. But that's not all he does. In this case, 
he meets with a woman engaged to an ex-marine who's gone missing just a few days before the wedding. After visiting his usual band of informants, he checks in with his police contact. Ben Travers is a friend, maybe my best. He's a copper, but I like him anyway. I helped him once, saved his daughter from becoming one of the undead, believe it or not, and now he helps me, when he can. Remember the phone message about the hockey tickets? That was, that was Ben Travers, his police friend. Ben doesn't really help him much in this case, except that they both agree that the missing man probably didn't just skip out on the wedding with cold feet. Alan continues to do his PI work, and we get a nice page divided into six long, short panels stacked right on top of each other. Six different locations, six different settings, color schemes, characters. And in each one, Alec is holding up a picture of the missing groom-to-be, telling the man's friends to ask around. Later in the day, on the highway headed to the hockey game, he narrates an update for us. No word on Arnie at all. Got his name circulated around, but little else. The day's a total washout. He's excited to see Wayne Gretzky play, and then we turn the page. Blam! Thock! Blam! Thock! Blam! Thock! Our hero is being shot at. Bloody hell. I was worried I'd have to relax tonight, God forbid. He spins his auto around to ram his pursuers. Jeez, my poor car. Fortunately, after the mess with O'Malley, Alec is prepared. Everywhere I've been since then, I've had my bag of toys. Ammo, explosive charges, and of course, dramatic swell... Prepare for the call-out to the title, My Firearm. You want trouble, you tossers can't even spell it. As he dispatches the attackers, he wonders if this is about the groom's disappearance or maybe something else. When he's done, a police cruiser pulls up, which sounds bad enough, but don't worry, it gets worse. Looks like he had some trouble, sir. Just a little bit, officer. Good thing for you I came along. Or it would be if I was a real police officer. He is, in fact, a lizard-looking, ultra-powered being, and is also out to kill our hero. In the melee that preceded this little get-together, the gun had flown out of Alec's hands, and by the time he finds it, he realizes he's out of ammo. The lizard thing mentions the groom's name, Arnie Tate. So it appears that there's much more to that case than first appeared. Lizard cop grabs our hero, lifts him up into the air. The fight's left you. I think those men my colleagues hired did too good a job of softening you up, perhaps. Then he tosses him into a barrier of some kind, maybe a restraining wall at the edge of the highway. Perhaps you were soft to begin with. Perhaps we should end this before you embarrass your... But the big bad stops his monologuing when he hears an ominous ticking coming from inside his skin-tight outfit. Gotta get it out! Can't reach in! I can't reach! Explosive charges for my gun. Always carry a couple of spares. It's funny. What is it about ultra beings? This overriding urge they get to wear spandex. And the lizard cop bad guy explodes. I gotta say here, that's a creative way to dispose of your enemy. Good on you, James Robinson. The last page is a shot of Alec, leaning precariously against that barrier, obviously beaten and hurting. Savage Bleeder nailed me a good one in the side. Don't be surprised if I puke any second. Bloody ultras. Every time. Every case they get involved and I get hurt. At the bottom of the page is his eponymous weapon. Oh, and there you are, my little friend. 
Where were you when I needed you? Kalabak, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water Podcast. And we're back. This book is obviously from the 90s, when every gimmick to sell a new book would be tried, most often by Malibu. But what they did with Firearm is a thing I've never heard of before or since. From what I can tell, the big thing about Firearm was that it had a zero issue, quote-unquote, that was actually a 30-minute film released on VHS and limited to 30,000 copies, and it sold for 15 bucks. I only spent about 15 seconds on YouTube searching for it, but I couldn't find it. The VHS is for sale online, however, with prices ranging from that original 15 bucks up to nearly $200. But 30,000 copies at $15 means a maximum retail sales of less than half a million dollars. And even as a loss leader, that couldn't have been much of a budget. I mean, I can't believe this was any good. Ben? Jason? Shag? The irredeemable Shag. Has anybody ever seen this? Please let me know if you have. Now, I'm not calling myself a comic book expert or anything in the Michael Bailey, Luke Giaconetti category. But I listen to a lot of podcasts, watch a lot of reviewers, read some blogs, and I've never heard anyone even mention this 30-minute zero-issue thing for Firearm. Even my buddy Paul O'Connor, who wrote for Malibu and still works with the Malibu editor Chris Ohm, did not mention this VHS movie when he talked about Firearm in an Ultraverse retrospective he did on his excellent blog, Longbox Graveyard. Editor's note. See episodes 28 through 30 for more on Paul O'Connor and his comic book writing career. Editor's note. The idea of editor's note is stolen from Sean Engel. One interesting thing to note. Remember that around this time, Malibu was purchased by Marvel? Now, my daughter Emily's impressive Google Foo did not find a place where I could watch this VHS movie, but... She did find a reference to Firearm on a list of Marvel movie properties, which I think is kind of a stretch. The last four pages of the issue are, in fact, a house ad for this very project, explaining it and ending with the tagline, 
the first movie that's faithful to the comic book because it is the comic book. You know, I have to say, I kind of like this idea. Maybe it was just 15 to 20 years too early. You know, there are you know, thrillers and other types of big-budget novels that are coming out with book trailers, quote-unquote, for the novel on YouTube, being you know, two or three minutes long, perhaps. So the idea of a live-action trailer for your comic book is not crazy. Again, maybe just a bit too early. Let's move on to the comic itself. And one of the great challenges of writing a piece of fiction featuring a single main character is the issue of how to communicate the inner thoughts of that main character. Now, it would be awkward to have Sherlock Holmes uh, talk to himself for the entirety of an adventure. So we have Dr. John Watson as someone to whom the great detective can demonstrate his great detecting skills. Now, in comic books, of course, that's the role often filled by a sidekick, giving us someone to identify with in relation to the main superhero character, and someone for the main character to speak to, to reveal his thoughts and plans and ideas. Now, villains don't really need sidekicks or lackeys or henchmen, at least not for this role. We're accustomed to hearing the villain speak his inner plans to the room in general, whether anyone is there or not. Now, the movie The Incredibles may not have coined the term monologuing, though they may have, I don't actually know, but they certainly brought that term into common parlance. Heroes don't monologue. They need someone to talk to. Back to prose fiction, another option is first-person narration which is more common in some types of novels than others. We mentioned Sherlock Holmes before. Probably detective fiction is the most common genre where we find first-person narration. We are tightly focused on one character's thoughts, conclusions, actions, gathering clues for the entirety of the story, which really works well in detective fiction. This narrow focus brings the reader's attention on just the main character, and we, the audience, do not know anymore than the lead character does. But often in comic books, we do know more than the hero because we've seen the villain. We know his plans. We know what the side characters are thinking. We get a bird's eye view from an omniscient editor. Or, for a while, we had Stan Lee directly telling us stuff. The equivalent in comic books to first-person narration is a book like Firearm, which does first-person narration boxes. And not a lot of comics do this. This choice that James Robinson made for Firearm certainly makes the book stand out. This is different. For one thing, in comic books, we often follow more than one character or storyline. We usually spend time with the title character, of course, but also with the villain and with the side characters. You know, think Lois, Jimmy, and Perry, or Pepper Potts, or Commissioner Gordon. So the inner monologue that we get here is kind of unusual. And Robinson takes advantage of that choice by letting Alex Swan introduce himself to us, as opposed to having an omniscient narrator do so. We get his personality, and he gives us a bit of his self-deprecating humor. Via the visuals and the monologue, we see he's not the pretty boy hero that comics often go for. He is a scarred, cranky, ex-English agent of some made-up intelligence outfit. I don't know how long this first-person POV narrative continues, into the series, or if there are more pages like the very first page of this issue, the only page which 
included other characters and another character's point of view. I'm kind of curious how long that very unusual way of comic book storytelling held. The the, the story itself, well, it, it, it was intriguing. I do like P.I., you know, bounty hunter types, non-powered characters in leading books, and focusing on one in a world that has ultra-powered characters in it is an interesting take. Because of the caption boxes I talked about earlier, we do get a feel for this guy. As not an Englishman myself, I don't know how that aspect of the characterization worked or came off. He did seem to use the word struth an awful lot. Swan's fandom for ice hockey and obsession with Wayne Gretzky seemed a bit out of place as, as well for a Brit. But taking time for tea did work for me. The action sequence at the end was exciting, but it did seem to be trying to go for the 90s extreme. It's ridiculous. With all the gunfire and car ramming, there was certainly some illogic to it as well, but I don't think it crossed the line of overly ridiculous until the lizard snake police officer showed up. I did actually shake my head at that point, but still, if issue number two fell into my hands, I'd be sorely tempted to read it. I'm not saying I'm going to seek it out, but I'm curious as to just what is going on in this world with the missing husband, how it all ties into Firearm and all of that. As we've talked about before, the Ultraverse was all about the writers, but Cully Hamner is a skilled artist who has a long and productive career in comics. That being said, this is in the 90s style. There's some useless lines and empty backgrounds. Eh, some of that may be the inker as well, uh, who's, who's responsible for that. I mentioned the cover price for this comic was $1.95. A quick check of Mike's Amazing World tells me that most books from the big two cover dated September 93 were $1.25. The Superman books, Reign of the Superman was happening at this time, were $1.50. So buck 95 was a bit high, but there were a few trade-offs. No ads, save the four-page house ad I mentioned. So the story itself was 28 pages long. And admittedly, those extra pages seem to have been dedicated to crazy action set pieces. But an unbreakable rule of this podcast is no complaining about a book that has more than 25 pages of story. Almost any comic is worth a penny a page. The verdict on Firearm Number 1. I have to say, I'm glad I read this. The story behind the book was interesting enough, and the P.I. bounty hunter setup was, was good as well. And James Robinson giving us a narrative style that was unusual and pulling it off pretty well. And a story that I'm kind of curious to find out how it ended. You can't beat that. A definite quarter bin deal. And the verdict on the irredeemable shag for picking this book? Not bad at all. He picked an interesting title, again, with an interesting pedigree. Definitely worth a couple of hours I had to spend with that guy. Okay, seriously. Thanks for the comic, Shag. Good job. And it was nice to meet you and Aaron Bias and little Russell Burbage, too. That wraps up my coverage of Firearm Number 1 bringing episode 35 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 36, we'll be looking at the most recent book I have ever found in the cheat bins. A book that was barely eight months old when I plucked it from a 25-cent box. I admit that assigning this book 
to this specific upcoming episode was not a random choice. It was dictated by the calendar. This is the closest thing I had to a Halloween book, and the next episode will come out in October. The selection is also a shameless attempt at coattail riding, search engine optimizing, and brand new TV show bandwagon jumping. Next episode, we'll be looking at Constantine number 8 from the DC Comics New 52, cover dated January 2014. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.